Our text this morning is Acts chapter 11, the first 18 verses. If you would please give attention to the reading of the Word of God. The Word of God is food for your soul. It is completely without error. It is the source of all authority. And it is sufficient for your life and faith. Acts chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa. And bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning in prayer because we need your help. We hear your word, we read it, but in order to truly understand it, in order to have it affect us, Lord, we need the power and the wisdom of your Holy Spirit. We pray, O Lord, that you would guide us into all truth. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Well, Acts chapter 11 takes up a different point, but a familiar story. Perhaps as we were reading through the text, it seemed quite familiar to you. It should. The bulk of the text is nearly identical to what we read in the last chapter. As a matter of fact, for those of you keeping score at home, this is the fourth time that this story or portions of it have been related in the last two chapters. Do you think God wants us to pay attention to this? And when God says something once, it's important. We should learn from it. We should follow it. When God says something twice, we should especially mark it. When God says something three or four times, it is absolutely critical for us. This is a very important story. We looked last week at the importance of the story in its space in redemptive history. And we looked at how God was expanding the kingdom to bring the Gentiles in. How he was doing a work that had never been done before. How the kingdom of God had expanded from the Jews to the Samaritans and now to the Gentiles. Acts is like that. It tells us about groundbreaking events. But there's something else that Acts is like. Acts is a type of book that if we... Pay careful attention to it. Makes us uncomfortable. Because Acts gets us back to the church in its early days. It gets us back to first principles. And it challenges us with our current Christian life, with our current church life. We will see throughout the rest of Acts various things to challenge us. But right here this morning... I would like us to see not a challenge with respect to redemptive history writ large on clouds, but I would like us to see a challenge to the church. No, a challenge to our church. A challenge to our church to follow in the footsteps of the Lord God Almighty. And so what I would like us to see is something that may be a bit of a a difficulty for us. First, I'd like us to see and acknowledge that change is hard. It is, isn't it? Any of you that have ever moved or bought a new house or perhaps even tried to start over with a new computer realize that the smallest of things can be difficult. Change is hard. But there's also wisdom here in this chapter about how to handle change. Change is hard, but we must learn about handling change. And then lastly, I would like us to see something that is applicable not just to change, but applicable to all of our lives, and that is how it is that we are being guided by God. This is a wonderful example of what it means to be guided by God as we think about our daily lives. So let's begin first then by thinking and acknowledging that change is hard. You may have noticed I'm not making a secret about this. Put it right in the title. It's one of those phrases that I think is heard more often in a church than any other. That's not the way we've always done it around here. Now I have to tell you that one of my great blessings 
as, as you go off to conferences or go off to presbytery meetings or go off to general assembly, you meet with fellow ministers and they ask you, how are you? How's your family? How's the ministry? They ask you about your church. What's it like? And for the first several years, the best thing that I could say and everyone immediately caught on was, you know, this church really doesn't have a lot of traditions. We don't have to do much just for the sake of doing it. And you'd get these wide-eyed looks like, really? You mean you don't hear? That's not how we've always done it? No, I don't hear that much. Didn't hear that much at all. Especially as we were wandering nomads in high schools and grade schools and all kinds of other places. But it's much more of a challenge when you're in a wonderful, useful, helpful building. When things become regular and ordinary. So what do we do as we think and hear about change? Well, I want you to see first here in chapter 11 that there is a a resistance to change in the church at Jerusalem. Now, do not forget what this church is like. This is a church willing to be persecuted for the truth. A church that has seen its members stoned and killed. A church that has seen its leaders jailed. A church that is bringing the gospel to Jerusalem, seeking to convert their friends and family members. This is not an apathetic dead church. But at the same time, there is a strong resistance to change in their midst. You can see it first and foremost just in the contrast in hearing the story. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. This is how Luke hears this story. Did you hear what happened? The Gentiles received the word of God. Luke's focus is almost entirely eternal. As a matter of fact, the way he describes this is nearly identical to the way he describes the change in Samaria in chapter 8. It's nearly identical to the way he describes the change at Pentecost in chapter 2. It is the way in which he will describe the Bereans. You know those noble Bereans, that church that we look up to? They received the word of God. Paul will commend the Thessalonians later for receiving the word of God. So Luke's focus is upon the eternal blessings that have come to the Gentiles from God and his word. It's also language that reminds us that God is at work in their midst. This is a work in which God is expanding His kingdom. And by the power of His word, He is converting the lost and building up a people to praise Him. That's Luke's perspective. Pretty exciting, isn't it? Now look down at verse 2. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem... Everyone in Jerusalem was excited that the Gentiles had received the word of God. Oh, I'm sorry. Reading from a wrong translation. That's what we would hope, but that's not what we hear. What we hear is that the circumcision party criticized him. They criticized Peter saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Yeah, we get all this about the conversion in the Holy Spirit, but you went and you ate their food. You had barbecue. What were you thinking? You see the difference? They're immediately critical. 
They don't know what to do. And I want you to not miss something else. Peter hasn't even shown up yet. Peter hasn't given his story. It's just a rumor and they are all worked up. You can imagine. They're ready to meet Peter. It's the non-welcoming party as he comes through the door. They've got their note cards with every verse that they need from Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy to tell him how he's wrong and how he couldn't possibly have seen something from the Lord. Because you know why. That's not the way we've always done it around here. We don't eat pork sandwiches. We don't like ham. We don't eat bacon in the morning. We don't like shrimp. That's not the way we do things around here. We eat good, kosher meals. You see, those at Jerusalem, and I need to make a note here, it's not just a party. You see, our translation, I think, here skews it a little bit. It says, the circumcision party. And I think you imagine that they had cards that they could put in their wallets. They weren't Democrats or Republicans. They were the circumcised. That's not the case, but the translation puts it this way because the text actually says in the Greek, those who were circumcised. And the problem is, everybody was. But the idea here is, it's those who were circumcised and were proud of it and who placed their meaning in it. They weren't a formal party, but they were an informal clique, at least. You see, they come in, or Peter comes in, they see him, and they are concerned. And they have good practical concerns. One of the things that we need to avoid as we read the Bible is thinking that our situation is completely different from theirs. And we think, well, they, of course, were, they were just thinking deep theological thoughts, and they'd all memorized the book of Numbers, and we haven't, so memorize the book of Leviticus, we would never act like this. I put it to you that perhaps the thing that they were most concerned about was not the book of Leviticus. It was the fact that they knew if word got around that the leader of the church was eating with Gentiles, all of the goodwill that they had built up in Jerusalem would be shot. They'd have conversations like this. Now, how are we supposed to evangelize in Jerusalem? No one's going to listen to us. Peter, you're not being very practical. If we're going to be a church that is involved in our community, how can you be having ham sandwiches? You need to knock this off. It's not practical, Peter. Oh, and by the way, we don't want to have people get arrested or beaten. Do you want poor Joan over here to get beaten again? How about Saul? You want him to get arrested? You see, when we put it in those terms... We can then identify a bit, can't we? We think about things that we would say and do. You know, you don't want to state very categorically that the Bible is the Word of God. Because people will make fun of you. And and they won't listen to you. You won't get a hearing in the culture. You see this? We can fall prey to the same temptation. And as a matter of fact, their fears were well-founded. If you can't wait till next week, flip ahead and glance at chapter 12, in which persecution really breaks out. One of the apostles is murdered, and another is arrested. You see, they understood the lay of the land. But sometimes God tells you not to worry about what's going around you, but to obey Him. You see, this is a challenge for us. 
There's something else here at work that we need to be aware of, and that is the power of tradition. You heard it right. In a Reformed Presbyterian church, the power of tradition. Tradition is not just limited to the Roman Catholics. You see, tradition has a power that grips us, partly because traditions are helpful. Traditions make us joyful. They're reminders of things, and so they have a grip on our hearts. You need to remember here, as we look at the text, that the circumcision party, the people who were concerned about Peter and his actions, they were not upset because God had saved Gentiles. That's reading into the text. They never said, you know, the gospel's not for Gentiles. They never said, you know, we can't have these people in the people of God. All they wanted was this little, easy, minor, middle step. Peter, is it so hard to teach them what they should eat? Then everybody will be happy. I mean, come on. Isn't the kingdom of God worth giving up a ham sandwich? Isn't the kingdom of God worth giving up bacon and shellfish? They need to understand that they need to be like us. That they need to follow the things that we follow, do the things that we do. And that's how they can live the most godly life that they have. You see, they wanted new converts. We should not look at this text and impose upon it and say, you know, this circumcision party, they didn't like people coming to know Jesus. They wouldn't bring the gospel. They wouldn't be outreach oriented. No, they certainly were. They were doing this in Jerusalem. The problem is it was the wrong kind of outreach. They wanted to put a barrier up that God had clearly taken down. You see, the power of tradition is in two things. First, it creates for us a comfort zone. And secondly, it creates for us an importance zone. Now, what do I mean by a a comfort zone? I mean, one of the reasons that we do the things that we do is because they're easy, they're comfortable. Everybody has an old bathrobe that they like, right? That they would never take out in public, holes in the elbows, stains on the shoulder, but it's comfortable, right? And we all do, we expect certain things to happen. There's a certain way that you eat Thanksgiving dinner. And you can't imagine why anybody else would do it differently, There's a certain time that you open up presents at Christmas. Can't imagine anybody would do it differently. You have to have certain gatherings at certain times and in certain places because why? That's just the way we always do it. It makes us comfortable. It makes us happy and joyful. And that's okay. Except for when God deliberately pushes us out of our comfort zone so that we might be his servants. You see, there's something very interesting that happens here. Peter relates the story of what has happened. I won't go through that point by point because we've looked at it, but I want you to look at something in verse 12. Peter reminds us that the Holy Spirit told him to go with the men from Cornelius, making no distinction. Do you see that? Now, I want you to look back. At verse 2, the circumcision party did what? They criticized him. Here's one for your notes. 
the exact same word. It's translated differently. It's the exact same word. Do you get the irony? Peter is saying, the Holy Spirit told me to go with these men from from Cornelius, although he doesn't use the name. He's not bound to Cornelius as a person. He's making a principled point here. He says, you ought to go and go quickly, go without distinction, without hesitation. He's telling the story to men who had just been making a distinction, just been making a hesitation. They had been distinct, making a distinction that God did not. They had been hesitating when God had said not to. Do you see that? God had taken them out of their comfort zone. You see, we would not think of this as that big of a deal. Okay, so, you know, he went and ate some food. But it was a very big deal to the church. It would be like if you all came here next Sunday morning and there were all new hymnals. That would throw you for a loop, wouldn't it? Or the piano were gone. Or the pulpit were not here and there were a lectern. Or the sound didn't work. And we decided to do something differently. Or if you got an email on Friday saying that worship would be at 2 p.m. on Sunday. Would make you a little bit uneasy. Not, not necessarily because there'd be anything wrong with it, but it would, it would certainly... 2 p.m., but that's going to mess up my lunch. And why? What's he thinking? What's the purpose of that? What good will come of that? Why can't we just do it the way we've always done it? You see that? You see, churches have their traditions, and traditions in themselves are not wicked and evil. I'm very glad we have a piano. I'm happy every Sunday that we have hymnals and that we have these hymnals. But the point is, is that the minute that we refuse to give up things that we love for the sake of God and His purpose, something has gone wrong. But it's not just the comfort zone. There's another challenge, and this challenge is for us. There's an importance zone. You see, for thousands of years, Jerusalem was the hub of everything. If you wanted to be converted, you had to travel to Jerusalem. Just ask the Ethiopian eunuch. Just ask the Queen of Sheba. Right? Jerusalem was the center of the universe. And now God is saying, I'm moving beyond Jerusalem. I'm spreading out. And you see, they could see the handwriting on the wall. If the Gentiles could become Christians just like the Jews, there are a lot more Gentiles than there are Jews. The church is going to become Gentile-centered. And haven't we seen that? How many of us here come from a Jewish background? Not many. And you see, that's also hard to give up. It's hard to give up a position of importance. Now, lest we think that we're not guilty of this, we, we can be as well. It's what happens when we look at other churches and think, you know, they can't really work for the gospel. It sends a cringe up my neck every time I hear leaders in the PCA talk about us being a leader denomination. And we need to do things because we're out on the front, on the the cutting edge. We have society's ear. And I scratch my head and I say, there are less PCA members in the country than there are Pentecostals in Tennessee. What are we thinking? Now again, 
Don't deny the gospel that we have and how we hold the word of God to be true and that we have something to stand for. But when we get a little bit too self-important, there's a problem. It should be God important. It should be Bible important. It should be truth important. We need to be careful about this. So how then do we handle the change that comes to us? How do we act so that we're not like the circumcision party? Well, I think we do it in two ways, and we see it from Peter. The first is we handle change with humility. And the second is we handle change with obedience. First, with humility. Peter comes in. Now, imagine that you are Peter. And you have just seen one of the most epic-making events in the history of mankind. God ingrafting the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit falling down upon them and you come in and people start badgering you about the menu. And they do badger him. The language, the tense is continuative. It's not just one question. This is 20 questions. This is Columbo without the manners. Now, what would you do if you were Peter? Well, I think I might be tempted first as they were firing all these questions to say, um, excuse me, uh, who's the top theologian here? You do realize I went to seminary to learn these things? And I can't say this, but Peter did. I went to seminary with Jesus. Three years. Where were you? Were you out with us when we went and fed the hungry? Were you out there when he explained Satan falling like lightning? Were you out there with Jesus? I don't think so. Sit down and be quiet. He could have pulled rank on them, couldn't he? Or perhaps he could have done what happens sometimes in Christian circles. He doesn't want to pull rank and be that crass. He could have pulled spiritual rank with them. You know, I didn't see you on the rooftop when the vision came down. You know, God gave me the vision. I'll describe it for you if you'd like. He gave that vision to me. I think there's a reason why he gave the vision to me and not to you. So maybe you might not want to be as critical, right? He could have pulled spiritual rank on them. But he doesn't do that either, does he? What does he do? The way Luke puts it is very interesting. They criticize him. They attack him. And he says, let me explain it to you in order. Now, this word for an order is a word beloved by lawyers everywhere and beloved by debate students and speech students everywhere. Because what it means is, Peter is going to tell them point by point, sub-point by sub-point, precisely exactly what happened. And he's going to let them decide. He's going to give them, in the famous words from the 50s, just the facts. He's just going to lay out the facts for them. Tell them where he was, what he saw, who he was with, what they saw. What they said. Do you see that? He just wants them to make their own decision. He's going to tell them exactly what has happened. And this is an attempt to win them over. There's a very vividness. When you have more time this afternoon, look at the description in verse 5 and in verse 6. And then look at the parallel in chapter 10. And it's just a bit more vivid. Peter uses an extra set of animals. His description is just a bit more, the verbs have a little bit more pop. 
He's describing for them in detail, but in an earnestness, in vividness. And he wants them to understand it because he wants real change. He doesn't want them to go along grumbling. He wants them to understand why they need to change. It's not because Peter said so. It's not because it would be efficient. It's not because some best-selling book says we should do this. It's because God says, this is how I'm building my kingdom. Because you see, there is a type of bad change as much as there is a type of clinging to tradition. It's the Christian fad of the year. Every year, some book comes out that tells us how we have to radically change all our prayer meetings, our approach to missions, our approach to worship, our approach to clothing, our approach to everything. And it has paperbacks and hardbacks and journals and tapes and calendars. And then you know what happens? About ten months later, something new comes out. You see, Peter doesn't want them following a fad. He's telling them this is a real groundswell of real change that God is making and doing, and they need to be with it. Because he knows in their hearts they're with God. You see, he's not attacking them. He wants them to understand the great blessing that he understands. And so he explains it to them precisely. Now, the other way in which we can deal with change, the other way in which we can handle change is with obedience. And this is a real risk for Peter. Peter could have gone back to Jerusalem and downplayed the incident. Oh, no. Okay, yeah, I did go, but I didn't eat the ribs. I just sat and had, I had some rice on the side. Don't worry about it too much, guys. Because you see, there's a real risk for him in his leadership. And this is real. If you have ever felt that kind of risk, if you have ever squirmed a little bit when change has reared its head for you, whether it's a way in which you feel the Lord is leading your marriage or the Lord is leading your family or the Lord is leading your church, then you need to understand that's a real emotion. And Bible people like Peter feel it. We know this for a fact. Because in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11... Peter stumbles. Years later, Peter's at a meal. And he remembers this conversation, perhaps, and remembers all the flack that he got. And when they spread out the ribs, he says, I'll just go over here and eat with the kosher folks. Paul has to call him on it. You see, dealing with change is hard. There's a real risk But the way to deal with that risk is not to calculate it, but to obey the Lord. And you see, what Peter does is he explains to them what's involved here and what the gospel is and what is at stake. It's interesting that it is here that we learn the real reason Peter went to Cornelius. Look at verse 14. Peter was sent, the angel told Cornelius, to declare to you a message by which you will be saved you and all your household. Do you remember when we said before that when Cornelius had done things that were good, he had done alms and he had done righteousness, things that made him acceptable to God? And you remember I said that didn't make him right with God. It was things that he had done that were pleasing to God, the types of things that God desires us to do. We see right here the proof of it because Peter says... 
Cornelius wasn't saved before I came. I went to him to make sure that he and his household would be saved. And do you notice what he doesn't describe about Cornelius besides his name? He doesn't describe him as a man who's beloved by the Jews. He doesn't describe him as a man who had given alms. He doesn't describe him with all of the good things he did. He describes him merely as a man in need of faith and repentance. You see, Peter has drilled down here. And he says, the reason that I'm embracing this change is for the sake of the gospel. To see people brought into the kingdom. To see families strengthened. To see lives changed. To see addictions thrown off. To see God glorified. That's the kind of change that Peter wants. Not change for change's sake. I think that Peter would not think we were being efficient and godly if we just decided, you know what, every month let's rearrange the chairs in a different design. Just to be fresh. I don't think that would be something that would be exciting for Peter. But what's exciting for Peter is that the gospel has gripped a whole family and that the gospel is now there for an entire race of people. And so with obedience, he focuses on this. And he tells them what God's design is, that it's outward focused, not inward focused. That's how we handle change. How do we go about doing this, though? This is a tall order, isn't it? I mean, we, we fret at small things. As I've said before, and I could say in other ways teasingly, if we decided next week to make the bulletin 8.5 by 11 instead of 8.5 by 14, some of you would look at it and wonder, is there, does the paper cost too much? Why? Why would we do this? And you'd all look at each other, right? We can't handle small things. How do we handle such a big thing as this when it comes into our lives? The key is in being guided by God. And these principles apply not just to Peter, not just to gospel situations, but to the everyday situations of life that you face. If it is one thing that 21st century American Christianity is weak at, it is discerning the will of God and doing it. Because we have a difficulty being guided by God. We're okay if a sheet comes down from heaven and a voice tells us exactly what we ought to do. We're okay with that. But where we have to think and apply the Bible is where real challenges come from. But there's a context in which Peter understands and why that vision is so powerful for him. I want you to notice this. There are three things that are involved with being guided by the will of God. The first is hearing. The second is seeing. And the third is doing. First, Peter was prepared by hearing from God. Do you notice how all of this started? What frame of mind was Peter in when all of this came upon him? He reminds us in this chapter. He's praying. All of this starts with Peter ready to hear from God. Lifting up his concerns to God. Being steeped in prayer. And so, the first thing that I would say to you, if you are... Faced with big change, whether it's in your church or which school to go to, which house to buy, which job to take, the place to begin is hearing from God in prayer. Start in prayer. Peter is open to hearing from God. 
But the second thing that Peter is open to, and the second thing that he hears from, is the very Word of God. He wants to know what God's will is for him, so he hears the Word of God. Now, on one hand, he hears it audibly, which we don't expect to now. But he also remembers it being said to him. You see, he quotes our Lord Jesus in Acts 1, verse 5, when he says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he recalls, perhaps, John the Baptist saying similar things in his ministry. You see, we start with prayer and we start with the Word of God. And the challenge to us as Christians is hardly ever do we start there. The first thing we look to is a feeling. The second thing we look to is what's going on around us. What things have happened? What magical kinds of things have happened that can tell us what we ought to do? But you see, Peter starts with the Word of God because that doesn't change. That's where God has made Himself known. That's where He has revealed His will. So he's open to hearing from God and he remembers, well, maybe he didn't remember it, because it postdates him. Maybe you should remember this. There is a little phrase, do not make providence your Bible. Do not make what happens around you normative. The word from God. You have a Bible to be a Bible. So start with the word of God. But he doesn't end there just with hearing. He also does see. Now, not starting with circumstances and providence doesn't mean we them either. Right? And so Peter does seek the providence of God. And he gets confirmation by what is happening around him. He's affected by circumstances. And it's okay. Do you think he believes it was a coincidence that right after he sees the vision, is Peter there? Is that a coincidence? If they come an hour earlier... Simon the Tanner says, get out of here, you Gentile dogs, slam. If it happens two days later, then it's like, well, you know, I had this vision a couple of days ago, but I'm not real certain about it. God sends them right at exactly the moment that they are needed. Peter recognizes this. And we ought to, too, as we look and we see the circumstances around us. And Peter understands this principle so much that when he goes to Cornelius' house, he purposefully takes six witnesses. Because you see, now when he's faced with questions and challenges, he says, it's not just me, ask Jacob. Go ask him. Ask his friend Paul. Ask Bob. They were all there. Six witnesses. The Bible says to establish a matter you need how many? Two He brings six because he wants to affirm what's going on by the circumstances around him. Then finally, after he has heard the word of God, after he has seen God move in providence, he makes the next step. It's a step that oftentimes we're afraid to make when faced with change. He does something. Do you see that in verse 17? He says, who am I to stand in God's way? I'm getting out of God's way. I don't know about you, but I'm standing outside of God's way. Who am I, literally the text says, to prevent God? 
You see, once we've heard the Word of God and we've seen confirmation in our providence, we need to act. We can't put up a barrier that God has taken down. We must act consistent with God. You see, the groundwork had already been laid by God. All Peter needs to do is follow along. This is the challenge for us today as Christ Church in Katy, Texas. Do we think we are the center of all Christendom? Do we think that God could not live without the PCA? That the gospel would just fall apart? Do we think that world missions will vanish if something happens to America? Now, I don't want bad things to happen to our country or our denomination or our church. I pray daily that the Lord will prosper us, that His kingdom will go forward. But it's His kingdom I'm committed to. It's His purposes, not ours. And we will be blessed as we follow His purposes. But sometimes that means we need to be open to change because resistance comes most often to change from the church. Do we dare to be defensive and stand in the way of God? Maybe the Lord is calling you today to a ministry. Maybe the Lord is calling you today to an occupation that you hadn't considered, but He has great things for you. Hear God in His Word. Look for confirmation in the providence that God has given to you. And then act on it. And see the blessings that God will bring as we follow His will, not our own. 